sitting there thinking, how many times I've made you read that passage for me? It's been a few, isn't it? It's a good passage. Amen. Last week we were challenged by the author of Hebrews to consider why anyone belongs in, sort, in any sort of hall of faith. Um, I talked about righteousness by faith and I think that righteousness by faith should at least do one thing for us and that is change the way that we read the Bible. Change the way that we look at those who we consider heroes of faith and why they are. And this came to me uh, after um, I was done preaching. I guess I could uh, do a sequel, but not quite a sequel. But if you look at the Hall of Faith itself, what we studied last week, it began with two men who, as far as we know, had nothing bad on their resume, except that they were human beings, which meant that they were sinners. But the Bible records nothing of their, you know, bad deeds. It's all good with Abel and with Enoch, right? It's all good. And then in the middle, you have all of these people who have uh, good stuff on their resume and have bad stuff on their resume. And then when you get a little further, there are people that have more bad stuff than good stuff on their resume. And then he got the last verses and put out a way to be, or all of the people that become martyrs in history. Now, when you start talking about martyrs, you actually start talking about people who, uh, if we believed in balancing the good and the bad, if you become a martyr, that's a pretty good way to wipe out all the bad, right? But what the author of Hebrews was telling us was they were all in there, that it didn't matter. That the perfect resume, the good and the bad, sometimes the more bad than good, and then sometimes somebody who tried to make up for it by becoming a martyr, they all belonged. They were all not condemned for their sin, but they were commended for their what? For their faith. See, and that's, and that's where we start. That's the starting point that we begin. And, and he, he concluded this way, the, the author concluded this way. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, so this is now where we belong. The author put us in the hall of faith. As long as we remember, the author tells us, as long as you remember why you're there. If you're gonna remember why Abel and Enoch are there, you gotta remember why Jephthah is there. If you're gonna remember why martyrs are there, you have to remember why Rahab is there. And that we're not in there being commended for any good that we have, but because of our what? Because of our faith. See, and the thing is, is that the reason that we have to understand that, the reason that we now walk in this cloud of witnesses, that we belong to this body, this body of Christ now, that we belong to this is because we all have the same faith. We all have the same problem, don't we? We're all what? We're all sinners. But he said also, you all can have the same atonement and righteousness. But you're gonna have to believe. And we're going to have to begin to lay aside the reasons why we may believe at any given time why we're there or why we're not. Because if we don't understand that, if we don't look back at the qualifications for the Hall of Faith, then unfortunately, very unfortunately, the thing that we begin to do then is that we begin to measure our righteousness with the only other stick that we have to measure, and that is against our brothers and sisters who are in the faith Hall of Faith with us. And I don't think there's anything worse than to begin to use our fellow sinners, to use our fellow believers as yardsticks. Because I know what my fallen nature does with that. I know how quickly I become so much better than somebody else. I thank you, O oh Lord, I'm not like him. I may not be perfect, but <laughs> I know I'm a whole lot better than him. And that is the danger. That's the danger of not knowing why we're there. And the cure, according to the author of Hebrews, we fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. 
the one that makes us perfect. The only thing that allows us, that calls us, that commends us to, to consistently be in this hall of faith and in this body of Christ is him. Believe him. Believe that he has completely made you perfect, completely forgiven you for all sin, past, present, future. He is the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. So here we are, this ragtag group of believers sitting here looking at each other. Here we are. We come together Sabbath to Sabbath. We find other reasons to come together. We try to live out a mission, try to encourage each other that when we go out into our neighborhoods that we could take our mission out there to make sure that no one, no one misses or lacks the grace of God. That's what we're here for. So the Hebrews will continue to ask us to consider something. And as we go on, the one thing that I would like us to consider what he is asking us to consider is when we've had a week like this week and we've had people actually who've been involved, we have people that actually, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess what happens with me is that I begin to read accounts of survivors of, of past shootings because this triggers everything for them. Every time something happens, they live through it again. I, I read a couple of articles and testimonies of two students who were at Columbine. By the way, they're college graduates now. And are we listening when they say, here's what helped, here's what didn't, and yet I find that the church continues to offer what doesn't help in these particular cases. And in case you haven't noticed, tonight, today may be one of those things that I might step on some toes, only because I've had my toes stepped on. So to consider moving on in chapter 12 in Hebrews, will we consider what he's asking us to consider and then consider where we are? and consider our witness, and consider how other people see us, and consider what we truly might be able to do, as you prayed, Grady, to really do some good, or look for some good, or point towards some good. So after we're told to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we're to consider him who has what? Who's endured such hostility. The hostility comes from who? Sinners. Now, when you read that, did your mind immediately go to somebody else? <laughs> Mine did, right? Because I didn't show hostility to Jesus. But the author of Hebrews says it was presented by sinners. See, and my first immediate reaction is not to include me in that group. First of all, I'm 2,000 years later. Second of all, I wouldn't show him hostility if he were here. That wouldn't have been me. Hmm, okay. But as he endured hostility against himself, so that you will not grow what? So you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider the hostility. Not just the words and the acts, but to consider who is doing it. That's what I would like to consider. To consider where the hostility is coming from. And when we think of him enduring hostility, and we picture sinners, we picture the world. But he faced most of the hostility from who? from those who claimed that they were believers. He didn't face it from the world. He faced it from the church. In the Gospel of John, he says he came into the world and he came simply to come to those who were of his own and his own did what? They rejected him. Professed believers, the church of the day, and what was it that set them off? Well, 
The first time that you ever hint somewhere in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, the first time that you ever hint that somebody wants to begin to persecute him is in John 5, 16. It says, therefore, and I'll say the story in the minute of what happened, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on what? On the Sabbath. What he had done was he healed a man on the Sabbath, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. How dare he heal somebody on the Sabbath? Because that's clearly violating what it says about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and do no what? Do no work. But it wasn't just that he healed somebody on the Sabbath. He also gave him permission to carry his mat through the courtyard. What's amazing is, is that after 38 years and completely healed, the man decided to do the one thing he'd been wishing to do for 38 years, but the good people inside kept him out from doing it. The first thing he wanted to do was to go into the temple and worship his God. But when he got in there, he immediately causes offense. He's carrying his mat. He has a burden. He's carrying a load. He's doing work. So what all this did was it challenged the church's assumptions about what it meant to be in this cloud of witnesses. They assumed that they were in because they knew his commands and they kept his commands. This healing challenges those assumptions. What it means to obey the letter of the law versus actually being the law. You have to, see, you have to, you have to say that the church is awfully arrogant, awfully presumptuous to tell the law that he doesn't know the law. And you have to see that when the spirit of the law is at work, where is it always going? What direction is it going? What is it doing? It's not just prohibiting somebody from doing something on, on, on the Sabbath. It's actually healing. It's actually showing compassion and mercy. Because every other believer that day on that Passover stepped over him to get to their public worship. Maybe somebody gave him money. That's good. That's good. But Jesus comes with no money. And he decides to give him the one thing that even he doesn't know that he wants. Thus giving the law its true purpose. They have a great relationship with the law on the tablet. We believers love our relationship to the law on the tablet because it doesn't hold us accountable for how we treat other people. All we have to do is not violate the letter. But sometimes when we simply concentrate on not violating the letter, we fall way short of what we should be doing. We fall way short of the compassion and the mercy and the healing that could be given by a commandment-keeping people. It's amazing, it's absolutely amazing that the people who felt they knew the law, who had a relationship only with the law on the tablet, looks at the living law, the only one who's ever had the law written upon his heart, and they call him the devil. So Hebrews is continuing to challenge along these lines. We're asked to consider this hostility against him. Why are we asked to consider this hostility? And why also are we, is he saying that we should consider it so that we don't grow weary? You know why? Because Jesus promised, if you follow me, the hostility they gave me, they're going to give who? They're gonna give you. So the author of Hebrews wants us not just to consider, but to also understand that we are going to experience this. And if we consider that it was against him also, then maybe, and this isn't the only reason or the only way to look at hostility or persecution against us, but one of the reasons is to look at, and when we experience it, one thing that should help just a little bit is to realize that if they did it to him, they did it to me. So if we're experiencing that, then maybe we're walking in the right place. Maybe. Right? 
so that we do not grow weary and what? And lose heart. So we won't lose it when it happens to us. And it will happen. So there are two principles that we are to uh, rely on, to, to, to lay on, to, to, to rest on when we begin to experience hostility for our walk, for our faith in Jesus, for being persecuted because of his name. We call ourselves by his name now, don't we? We became Seventh-day Adventist Christians we're part of the way. We call ourselves by our name. So from the author of Hebrews, he, has said, he said that, yes, you will experience it, but there are two things that I want you to remember. There are two principles that I want you to remember. And that is this. You, who have or haven't experienced yet, you have to remember that you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We get up every day and we try to strive against one thing. And what is it? To strive against sin. That's what we are supposed to do. Do something about the sin in my life. Don't let it allow to control me. And especially don't let it uh, allow to control me on how I treat other people. Not just myself, but how I treat other people. I don't want to be in charge today, Lord. I want you to be in charge. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wake up every day and say, I've got nothing. In fact, if I leave here without asking you to fill me, I've got nothing. I won't be able to strive against sin. So the one point that he's trying to tell me is that yesterday, Greg, you fell short of striving against sin up to the point of shedding blood. And today you probably will too. But we keep going. We press on. We keep our eyes on who? On Jesus. So the first point, he says, is to remember that you, that we, no matter what we do, are never going to match what he did. Remember, our high priest only walked in there to sacrifice himself how many times? Once and for all, right? So we remember that we're never going to be this. Keep in mind that we decide that the hostility we face is unimaginable. If we, if we begin to say, oh, I, don't, I can't even imagine going through this. I'm so, I'm so being persecuted. Whoa, whoa. The one thing I remember is, okay, okay. And not to belittle anybody's persecution, but one thing to remember is that it wasn't what he went through. You with me? Most Christians used to have a modicum of modesty and decency before they compared their level of persecution to someone else's. But I have to say that in the last three years, that went out the window. I'm not saying that I, that I saw it from anybody here, but I saw Christian after Christian after Christian and post after post after post compare themselves to somebody in Auschwitz or living under Jim Crow simply because somebody asked them to put on a mask. That kind of decency seems to be out the window. We're to consider Jesus before popping off about how hostile it is to live out our beliefs. And the first thing that the author of Hebrews says is look at where your blood is today. Is your blood where it relatively should be? In other words, inside your arteries, inside your veins? Are you breathing? Is your heart beating? Okay, then back off a little bit about telling me how persecuted you are. I'm not talking just about the cross either. See, because Jesus' sacrifice was like no other. There was never a high priest in the history, in the six, 7,000 year history of the temple, there was no high priest that was asked to sacrifice himself. There is no sacrifice like this. And it wasn't just the shedding of his blood. I'm not talking just about the cross because that wasn't the only time that he shed his blood, was it? When was the first time he shed his blood on account of you and me? Do you remember? When was the first time anyone ever noticed that his blood was pouring out of him outside of his body? It was a Gethsemane. 
the disciples looked and Luke recording it saying that it even his, his blood poured out of his pores like sweat dropping onto the ground. His martyrdom was like no sacrifice. It wasn't just the sacrifice. It was, it was not just the act of actually laying down his physical life, but he actually was, it was what he was accomplishing. He was taking care of the entire curse of the fall. Not just forgiveness for a sin, but the entire curse of the fall. We're told that, the, that it all started when our sin began to separate us from who? From God, you, humanity acquires for themselves a new nature that acts in separation. The very first thing the fallen nature does is get them to separate themselves from God. God is now over here. Humans are now in the bushes. It was immediate. When God comes looking for him the very next day, he calls out, where are you? I was afraid because I heard you and I was naked. It was immediate. But have you ever wondered that next, over the, the, the millennia, the thousands and thousands of year history of this nature being in charge of our creation and being in charge of ourselves, don't we, don't we widen that gap every day? Doesn't that separation come every day? Even to the point to where we realized that we could even use his very word and, his, and our very act of worship as a way to separate ourselves from him. <laughs> Jesus had, had people reading his law back to him, telling him why he couldn't be the Messiah. The law says you can't be the Messiah. Imagine using your Bible to separate you from God. It can be done. We managed to do it. When I say we, I'm talking about humans. So what Jesus is doing is beginning in Gethsemane, he's allowing himself to separate from God. It's the whole stage. It's the entire stage. It's not just dying to forgive sins. It's actually beginning to actually live the separation or the curse of the separation out for us. And it causes such trauma for the son of man that his earthly body actually ruptures from it. Hematidrosis really happens. Under times of great anxiety and great stress, our blood pressure would be elevated to the point to where the blood actually ruptures through the capillaries and into our sweat pores. It happens. And it happened to him. The mere thought, the mere beginning of separating from God, the Son of Man, his body crumbles, it explodes. The anxiety, the sheer horror to him. That's what elicits, Father, is there another way? Can I let this cup pass from me? Is there another way? But he knows when he asks it that there isn't. He says, okay, your will, not mine. Meanwhile, all other sons of men the people that should be able to love as he loves, to, be, to act as he acts, they're at a distance, aren't they? They're at a distance, and they're asleep. Did you ever think, did you ever wonder that they may be at a distance, they separated themselves, but they could hear him, couldn't they? And what they decide to do, even when they could hear him? They decided to stay at a distance. They decided to stay there. That's us. That's humanity constantly separating ourselves from this. And here the Son of God and the Son of Man is over on this rock experiencing that separation, the curse of that separation for us. So that we don't have to live it. See, and that's just it, is that we can wake up every day, and we do wake up every day, and we can separate ourselves from God like that and not feel anything, don't we? 
Okay, maybe I shouldn't speak for anyone else. I know I can. And if you're honest with yourself, you know you can too, right? Separate from God like that and feel nothing. It begins with Jesus. It just, the act begins of separation. And his body ruptures. That's what I think of when I see this verse. You've not yet resisted the point of shedding blood in striving against sin. And what I conclude after that too is that I never will, which is why I need saving and why he came to do what he came to do. So this is what he's experiencing. We consider hostility, but also consider that this particular hostility is defined. It's the hostility that was faced by him. It's the particular hostility that we are to endure. Not just any hostility, not just somebody being hostile to you because they want to be hostile to you. By the way, and not for any other reasons. But is it hostility that he experienced? The only hostility that we are to look at, that we are to endure, is is what that uh, he was persecuted for. Not something just because it's unpleasant, just because I don't like it, just because I don't agree with someone else. That doesn't mean that I'm getting uh, actual uh, God-given, not God-given, but uh, God-endorsed hostility. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that I'm getting Christ-type hostility. You ever sung the song, you know, break my heart, Lord, for what breaks yours? You know, what, what, what are some of the other ones? Let me see what you see, you know? Be careful when you ask him that. He might show you. And he has shown me a few times. And you know what? I see it, and in here, nothing. So I turn to him. See, that's who we are. I can separate from God like that. I ask him to break my heart for what breaks his. He shows me what breaks his heart, and it doesn't break mine. And I turn around, and what gives? And Jesus says, now we're talking. Come on. Come on. And so real quick, the other point. The other point. One is to remember that if it isn't persecution that Jesus felt, even though, and even if it is, we're never going to get there, right? It's not gonna be ours. And by the way, <laughs> just real quick, we don't have to. That's why he did. And then the next is this. He says, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you're punished by him for the Lord disciplines those who he what? Who he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of what? Discipline. The other way, the other thing to remember that when you are experiencing uh, persecuting hostility, one is, is that it is discipline. Let me ask you, let me ask you this, and I, and I don't know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult convert, and I'm not sure that I'm uh, that much farther or too far ahead of somebody who was born and raised in the church, but, but as, as people who have walked with Jesus for quite a while, for quite a while, do we really think, do, do, we, do we really think that living, let's say, uh, I don't know how to put it. Because I, when, you, when you begin to use terms like living a life of ease, uh, you know, then I'm saying that everybody, that nobody had troubles. That, but for the most part, let's just say for the most part, we have not faced uh, what we would consider or look forward to end time persecution in this country, have we? If we grew up here, we've been privileged, haven't we? Okay, so, so that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about personal hardships. I'm talking about outward hostility. I'm talking about the beast trying to do to us what he promises, what the Bible promises he will do to his church. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Not to, not to the beast church, but to the lamb's church. You with me? 
So do we think that living for the 150 years so that we haven't been, that all of a sudden if tomorrow the, the, uh, that, that, that gun goes off, the bell out goes off, and we truly are experiencing end time persecution, that we would be able to go from that to martyrdom like that? I don't think so. And that's the problem that I see now is that what it was supposed to be, what the walk is supposed to be is that it's supposed to be like training for something. So hostility comes and we begin to handle it the way Jesus did and we get better at it. So that maybe if it does happen tomorrow, okay, we hit the ground running. You with me? I mean, I don't think I'm ready to be a martyr tomorrow. Are you? Maybe you are. I don't know. That's between you and the perfecter of your faith, by the way. So one other reason to look at this, hostility, is to look at it like what? Like discipline. Furthermore, we all had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather subject to the father of spirits and live? Another, uh, again, that rabbinic argument, the vow hachomer, the, the, the argument from the least to the greatest. We all had earthly fathers who we subjected to discipline for. How much more should we subject to who? To our heavenly father for discipline. They disciplined us as short-time earthly fathers as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we what? So that we would share in his holiness, just like our fathers. I'm real careful with that, though. Notice what he said. We respected our fathers. He's talking about fathers who truly did discipline and not abuse. Be very careful who you throw these words at. Because I know I'm looking at at least one out of five people who did not experience uh, discipline from fathers that you could respect. I know that they abused you. Using these passages to reason and to rationalize on somebody else. Well, again, that's not the hostility that we were called to do. That's not the hostility we were called to suffer. So I come back again to this cloud of witnesses, this community, this living trust with each other that could suss these things out. In other words, have a safe place for people whose fathers were that way. Have a safe place where they could confess that. To let them know that upon your physical abuse, I'm not gonna heap spiritual abuse on you. Is telling somebody that God says, I have to honor my abusive father, that's abuse in and of itself. Anyway, he says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. If anybody has ever trained for anything, what he just said was a spiritual version of no pain, no gain. <laughs> That's right, man. But I'm not going to compare the, to the people who really should know that. You know, you know who would really know what that feels like? is turn and ask any mother here today, right? Or are you gonna tell me that labor wasn't painful? But it was for a purpose, wasn't it? I'm not gonna compare my weightlifting or marathon training to labor, okay? I'm not, I ain't going there. But that's what he's saying. By the way, it's physical therapy too. Therefore, it strengthens the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble. Make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be what? Physical therapy. Hostility that we face can be looked upon as physical therapy. Moving beyond the pain to strengthen. But remember, going back to point one, compared to Jesus, we're not built for this. We never were. The reason he came. 
The reason he is our son of man. The reason he is our one great high priest. So then how is this hostility then confronted? Simple. Do what Jesus did. He pursued what? He pursued peace. With how many? With everyone. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See, normally I had cut and paste my many references to Gandhi and to Dr. King and the power of nonviolence, and I still hold them up for our modern lives as the one example that touched all of us. We live through this. We know it. But, but I can't now because it's been co-opted by the people that I've talked about before. It made it to do petty definitions of persecution. Using things like the civil rights movement, using things like the Holocaust, to compare to my hostility living in North America in 2020, I can't even use it anymore. It's been co-opted. So I'll keep it home, okay? I'll keep it right here. In a culmination of research, 15 years of research, that Barna Research did on Christianity's image in North America and how the church is perceived by outsiders. David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons' 2007 book, Unchristian, tells us this. Consider these stats. Most Christians believe that they come across as genuine and caring. 64% of all Christians believe they come across as genuine and caring. But only a third of outsiders believe that Christians genuinely care about them. 34%. 34% of people who do not uh, claim to be Christian say that only, only, only 34% of them say that I believe that a Christian actually cares about me. I know what we're thinking. Oh, outsiders, the world, they don't get it. They haven't really experienced it. They get all their information from crooked televangelists and scandals. They get all their information from long-winded preachers. They haven't been in here. Or worse, hey, they're of the world. That's who they are. That's just who they're going to be. So we should separate ourselves from them. And then we get justified, we believe we're justified then in being hostile to them. So I want you to consider this if you don't think that they understand, if you don't know the world understands. Among non-Christians ages 16 to 29, more than four out of five have gone to a Christian church at some time in their life. Most of those have attended three months or more. In exploring church in the American teenager, they found that the vast majority have spent their teen years participating in a Christian congregation. Most teenagers enter adulthood considering themselves Christian, and within a decade, most have left the church. The most sobering thought is, is that when we look at outsiders in this country, we're not looking at unchurched, we're looking at de-churched. And if you don't think that applies to us, where are our youth? And how long have we been asking that question? First value Genesis survey, the very first time that the North American division wanted to begin to study what is happening to our youth, because back then in 1990, we were losing one out of five, one out of six, and now all of a sudden, 40 years later, it's eight out of 10. that that de-churched young adult population out there includes a lot of our kids, doesn't it? So it shows that hostility on our part is a what? It's a sin. Philip Yancey in his book, Rumors of Another World, says, a short story by the Spanish writer Carmen Corda tells of a young woman who gives birth to a blind son. I do not want my child to know that he is blind, she informs family and neighbors, forbidding anyone to use telltale words such as light, color, and sight. The boy grows up unaware of his disability until one day a strange girl jumps over the fence of the garden and spoils everything by using all the forbidden words. 
His world shatters in the face of this unimagined new reality. In modern times, Christians resemble the strange girl who brings the message from the outside. To a skeptical audience, they bring rumors of another world beyond the fence, of an afterlife beyond death, of a loving God who is somehow working out his will in the chaotic history of this planet. And as in Carmen Corda's story, the news may not be welcome. We forget that what is to us an extension of sight is to the rest of the world a peculiar and arrogant blindness, says Flannery O'Connor. Is this just me? Is this just an opinion of an evangelical author? We remember Proverbs 18, 19 that says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate with locked bars. Pursue peace and the sanctification without one, no one sees the Lord. Pursue peace and pursue what? Pursue holiness, pursue sanctification. Yes, this living, this perfection we've been giving, living it out, being sanctified will bring hostility who we are supposed to bring peace with. What have we been taught that it means to live the sanctified life? We're Seventh-day Adventists. We we, we can talk, right? We've been told that we keep how many of the commandments? All of the commandments, including the what? In fact, fact, that has become the Adventist addendum to that. How many commandments do you keep? All of them, including the fourth one. But tell me this. How is our Sabbath-keeping Has it been viewed that we're living out of love? Has has your Sabbath keeping, because I know mine hasn't, has your Sabbath keeping caused a hostile backlash? That it it caused by Jesus? I know mine hasn't. How will this pursuit be used? What is the actual weapon to be used? What is the weapon that we're supposed to be using to pursue peace? See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many then would be defiled. There's nothing more troubling than grace. There isn't one thing on this planet that causes more hostility than grace. If you don't believe me, just look at Jesus after he walked out of the temple that day. Because in John 5, 16, it said they begin to persecute him. And one chapter later, they were looking to kill him. See, and what makes it hostile, what we ask is, who is the grace benefiting? Uh, what is our sanctified life? Who is it benefiting? Where are our means, our resources going? You know what we have, you know what the greatest thing we have to offer? Yes, I believe that grace is the greatest gift that we have to offer. But you know the one way, the absolute way, the, the, the most treasured thing that we would understand that we could give grace through, you know what it is our greatest gift would be to a world that needs grace is our fellowship. Is to let them know that they're welcome in here. That they're welcome with us. Hey, and when that happens, by the way, we get a backlash. And the backlash probably will come within the church. You let that guy in? I hear it all the time. You baptized him? That's all I'm asking. When I'm trying to live out my sanctified life, do I see a hostile backlash? If I get a hostile backlash and I get it from the church, I've, you can ask Nellie, I've gotten to the point in the past 35 years that if I'm getting a hostile backlash and it's coming from church people, I'm probably doing something right. But our theology, what are we, what are we doing to co-opt you know, what are we doing that, that may co-op that message that everyone is welcome? 
Are we, are we placing cultural limits? Are we placing political limits? Are we placing sociological limits? What is co-opting our grace from getting out? See to it that no one misses the grace of God. When I wanted this to become our, our, our mission just statement, just something that we, can, that we could hang our hat on and that we could begin to, to uh, develop ministries and, and, and mission and everything around, I used the one uh, definition. The word actually means see to it that no one lacks the grace of God. It's a Greek word that, that says lack. I don't know why, no, no, no version that I know that translates it literally. See to it that no one lacks the grace of God. The one that comes close, the 1984 NIV. So I hope it always stays in print because it's the only one that I co-opted that said, that, that said let no one miss the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. I stepped on some toes today and I'm sorry. But we have to step on some toes. Are they the toes that Jesus had stepped on? Are they the toes that were already paralyzed? Whose toes are we stepping on? And what is it about us that is offending? If it's our grace that's offending, then we have to keep stepping on toes. But if we're stepping on toes of the people that are already paralyzed and laying by the pool just looking for any hope, And the author of Hebrews tells us we need to reevaluate. We need to reevaluate the hostility, how we're experiencing it, and how we actually may be giving it out. I'll leave you with Philip Yancey's book, Vanishing Grace. It's the follow-up. It's the 20-year follow-up that he, that he uh, wrote to What's So Amazing About Grace that he released in 93. He says, I've seen the quiet grace of service and love of, of uh, many disarm despisers. And I've seen it in the compelling example of Dr. Francis Collins. No one can dispute Collins' credentials as a scientist. He held, holds both a PhD and an MD, and he directed the Human Genome Project toward the triumphant goal of mapping all three billion letters of the human genetic code. Collins also identifies himself as a committed Christian and has engaged in cordial public debates with atheists such as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the latter in a Time magazine cover story. Due to his Christian faith, Francis Collins' nomination to head the National Institutes of Health, again, this, came out, this book came out in 2015, uh, Dr. Collins just retired from that position a few months ago as the director of the NIH. It's the nation's largest scientific organization attracted strident criticism. One scientist accused Collins of suffering from dementia. Another complained, I don't want American science to be represented by a clown. Skeptics scoffed at his respect for the Bible. When TV host Bill Maher told Richard Dawkins falsely that Collins believes in a talking snake, Dawkins replied, he's not a very bright guy. In time, though, Collins won over most of his critics. As I've watched his career, one thing impresses me more than his many achievements. It's how he treats his opponents. On periodic visits to Oxford, he has tea with Richard Dawkins. Similarly, he met often with the militant atheist Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great. And when Collins learned that Hitchens had esophageal cancer, he called to offer help. As NIH director, I approve many government-funded research grants, and I know about some rather cutting-edge approaches based on cancer genomics. Over the next few months, he spent hours with the Hitchens family going over options for treatment. Christopher Hitchens lived with his cancer for a year and a half, and an ordeal that he chronicled in regular columns for Vanity Fair magazine. He told of receiving hateful messages, messages from Christians, including one who believed mistakenly that Hitchens had throat cancer, rejoiced that he got cancer in the one part of his body he used for blasphemy. 
Then comes the real fun, the letter went on, when he's sent to hellfire forever to be tortured and set afire. Yet one of Hitchens' last columns paid tribute to Francis Collins, whom he described as one of the greatest living Americans and our most selfless Christian physician. He wrote, this great humanitarian is a devotee of the work of C.S. Lewis, and in his book, The Language of God has set out the case for making science compatible with faith. I know Francis, too, from various public and private debates over religion. He's been kind enough to visit me in his own time to discuss all sorts of novel treatments, only recently even imaginable, that might apply to my case. Hitchens had no deathbed conversion, passed from this life as a convinced atheist, but from one friend, at least, he received spiritual care, the quiet service of love. Francis Collins fulfilled the command in Hebrews, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. The rest is in God's hands. We see to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's the only way that we endure hostility. It's the only way that we are allowed, we're not allowed to give hostility back. We receive hostility, we give grace. And no, it's not easy. But we look to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And we come together in his body and we lift each other up and we help each other do the same. Thank you all for hanging on again.